Well, I know that many of us have cabin fever. We've been cooped up in our houses all week, and so I'm going to do my best to keep you extra long today, because I just don't want you to have to rush back home to your house. So I hope you enjoy my gift to you today. Um, But I'm thankful that we were able to survive this week and be able to enjoy the things that God brought us, and maybe we didn't work as much as normal, and we know that the Lord will provide and protect uh, protect us and, and care for us in that way. And so I'm very, very grateful and very thankful. As you can see, the title of my sermon is one that uh, I feel like the trailer has been uh, published and, and released, and now the, the movie has come. It's, it's time to, to dive into one of the, one of the more uh, interesting and controversial and necessary uh, passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, let me just give you a disclaimer this, this afternoon. I will not be preaching from 1 Corinthians today. Um, but we are, I'm going to lay the groundwork for us to get to this chapter. And um, I think that our study today um, will do that. Um, so you can have your place in 1 Corinthians 14 as Paul will begin to address the uh, spiritual gifts of the church, most particularly prophecy and tongues. We will hear many sermons about that chapter. Um, it's the last chapter about spiritual gifts. Um, as Paul concludes his letter, um, chapter 14 concludes spiritual gifts. Chapters 15 and 16 conclude the book. So it seems like we're close, but we're really not. We're, we're pretty far away, if I'm being honest. Uh, but for us to understand chapter 14... What I want to do is present to you today this question and hopefully an answer. Are miraculous gifts for today? Um, As we think about that, I want us to, as I said, look at the the passage that was read, Ephesians chapter 2, because sometimes you have to go backwards before you can go forwards. Matter of fact, in sports, if you're familiar with basketball or football or soccer, there's always the need to go backwards before you can progress the ball forward. And that's what we're going to do here today. Um, And so we're going to do that in Ephesians chapter 2 so that we can understand and and what I hope to see and argue is the answer to the question, are miraculous gifts for today? Now let me make two introductory statements about spiritual gifts, okay? Okay. Um, we've, we've, we've looked at these briefly. Um, Paul mentions them in chapter 12, uh, but we're going to dive deeply into particularly the two gifts of prophecy and tongues in chapter 14, which I call, and most, a lot of people call, miraculous gifts, okay? They are gifts that accompany or are part of a miraculous work, all right? But here's two tra- uh, introductory statements. Number one, is that regardless of whatever side you are on to the answer to this question, whether your answer is yes or no, regardless of what side you're on on that answer, um, there's a truth that lies at the foundation. And that is, is that no one on either side is denying that spiritual gifts are for today. My question is not, are spiritual gifts for today? My question is, are miraculous spiritual gifts for today? No one is denying 
that spiritual gifts have ceased. No one is denying that the Holy Spirit has stopped doing miraculous things in the world. Okay, we're not we're not denying those things. The the Holy Spirit is continually bringing about um, miraculous acts um, in ways that we sometimes don't even hear about or know about. Uh, we can tell you, I can tell you that that every person that comes to faith in Jesus Christ and we see a, a transformation in their life, we are witnesses to miraculous acts. Okay, and so what we have been. Uh, desensitized to is we have been desensitized to the uh, showy, flamboyant type of charismatics that have gone on in the, the history of the church in different eras. And so we have sadly labeled that as a work of God. And therefore, when we don't see that, we, we pretend or we fall into the trap of thinking that God is not at work. Okay. So no one is denying that spiritual gifts are active in the church, uh, nor are we denying that miracles happen because we believe God can do anything. All right? God can heal. God can uh, do whatever He wants to do uh, to bring about His purposes in this world. A uh, second statement would be this. Spiritual gifts, and particularly the use of spiritual gifts, are a secondary issue for the church. Okay, they're a secondary issue. And what I mean by that is that some people and their interpretation of these passages want to divide over this issue. And when I use the word divide, I don't mean divide in an angry or or uh, disunified way. I just mean that some people that come to a different conclusion than than say I do about this question prefer to divide and go to a church that agrees with them on this issue. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay to graciously divide over this issue because I don't want to pastor a church that speaks in tongues because I believe speaking in tongues has ceased. Do you understand? And so if we can divide over this issue in the sense of graciousness and kindness and goodness, that's fine. What we don't need is disunity because the use of spiritual gifts in the church, particularly the miraculous spiritual gifts, are a secondary issue, and there's no reason to be disunified with our brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever we come to as a conclusion to this issue. All right? You may not want to attend a church that speaks in tongues, and that's okay, but if that church proclaims the gospel, then there's no reason for us to deride them. There's no reason for us to, uh, to, to, to speak ill will of them if they are promoting and preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Alright? So there's no reason for us to be disunified even if we divide. I have a friend that works at a seminary and he disagrees theologically about with many of the professors at that seminary. And they have a very healthy relationship as brothers in Christ, even though they do not line up on major theological and doctrinal issues that we would agree with in the reform perspective at this church. Those professors don't agree. He agrees. They still have a good relationship. So we should not have disunity in the body of Christ. Now, I delineate these as miraculous gifts in my title, because as I said, I don't want you to think that I am saying that miraculous, or excuse me, that spiritual gifts have ceased. That's not what I'm saying. 
But what I will say and what I will argue for is that miraculous gifts in the church have ceased. They're not needed. And that's what I'm going to argue for today. So let me give you two words that you probably don't use in everyday life. Um, these are definitions. These are the two sides of this question, all right? And I think I've given you these before, but if not, here they are. The two sides to this have been labeled those who believe in what is called cessationism. And they believe in the continual use of spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit for the church, but who believe that certain miraculous spiritual gifts have ceased their function in the church with the end of the apostolic age. That's cessationism. That's what I'll be arguing for today. Okay? Continuationism is the other side of that coin. Those who believe in the continual use of all spiritual gifts in the church given by the Holy Spirit, which cessationists also agree with, but who also believe that certain miraculous gifts continue their function in the church today. All right? So what we're going to focus on is what I believe is is a very pivotal point of this argument for cessationism in Ephesians chapter 2. And so I want to bring to us uh, this passage again. It was already read, but I'll read it again. So then Paul says to the, the people in Ephesus, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow, fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God, having been built, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, the context of uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is Paul is talking about, uh, he's, spe- he's speaking directly to Gentiles, those who are outside of the, the, the people of Israel, and yet have put their faith in Christ. And what he's saying is, is that with the, the Jews who put their faith in the Messiah and, and the Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, they are being literally brought together into one building to make up the church. And so Paul is talking about the church in Ephesians chapter 2, and he's talking about the work of Christ in bringing Gentiles along into the same unity and, and, and community of faith as those Jews who believed in Jesus Christ and accept Him, much like Peter and, and, and the apostles. Okay? But what he says in this passage is something to note for us in our discussion of um, spiritual gifts and the miraculous spiritual gifts. And it's found in verse 20. He says that as the church is being put together, that the Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household. He, he notes that the church, the household of God, was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Okay? So what I want us to think about, first of all, is what does he mean by foundation? Foundation. Well, as a construction guy, I know firsthand the importance of having a foundation that is correct before a structure can be built on top of it. At Coleman and Owen, we oftentimes remodel a lot of houses in Midtown, and we spend a great deal of time 
leveling the floor and correcting uh, areas of the floor that are unlevel and out of plumb. Because if your floor is not level, which would be the foundation in a sense, if the floor is not level, then everything you do on a crooked floor or an unlevel floor then is compromised because of that. Your walls aren't plumb and straight. Your cabinets can't go on straight. Your appliances won't even work properly. All because the floor is not level, because the foundation is corrupted. And so Paul wants us to think about, with this illustration, the foundation of the apostles of the apostles and the prophets. What Paul is doing is he's taking us back to the history of the church's beginning, where we can see how God established the church through this foundation of the work of the apostles and the prophets, whereby they uh, brought about gospel ministry, spreading the gospel. We see the beginning of this in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes down, He empowers the apostles that were sent out, and the work of the church begins in Acts chapter 2. Well, this is what Paul is talking about, that this beginning, this, this very, uh, the apex, or excuse me, the very beginning of the work of the church, he calls the foundation that was brought about by the apostles and the prophets. They were to go out and to bear witness of the risen Christ for all who would hear and believe. And those who believed would be transformed by regeneration and would be added to the church. Therefore, this work of the apostles, Paul says, is the foundation of the church. And what's in the foundation that's the most important, it's the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the very first stone that is laid in a foundation in that time period. If you don't get that stone correct, as you create the rest of the foundation for the building to set on, the foundation is crooked, the building doesn't work or isn't, isn't structural, and therefore the whole thing's a disaster. Christ, he says, is the cornerstone. Okay? He is the utmost priority for the building to be proper. Alright? And so he's telling us that, that Christ is our starting point. He is the one that, that allows us to have the appropriate foundation. These apostles and prophets were not going out preaching a message about themselves. They were preaching the message about Christ, about His redemptive work, about the salvation that we can have in His name alone. And therefore, to have a proper foundation for the church, the apostles and prophets had to go out and they had to pro- proclaim the good news about Jesus not about anyone else or anything else, okay? This was not some promotional, um, uh, I guess you could say crusade, where the apostles went out just kind of recruiting people to join a community of people. They were proclaiming a transformative message, their gospel message, their message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now here's where this uh, stands as a as a very helpful and truthful uh, idea about spiritual gifts. It's because when Paul uses the word foundation, he gives us a clue as to the work of the ministry of apostles and prophets. Because a foundation, once it's laid, is completed. It's completed. 
You don't continue to lay the foundation in the building process. You lay the the foundation, and once the foundation is laid, it is completed. It is done. And the completed foundation for us is a huge idea and clue for us to understand the history of the church. Okay? Here's why. Because if you run into people today that tell you that apostles and prophets still exist in time today, they don't understand Paul's message in Ephesians 2, which literally signifies that the foundation of their work that was laid for the church is done. That's the illustration. That's the idea that Paul is trying to communicate. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets' ministry is our concern today as we think about spiritual gifts. Now, this idea is called the apostolic age. The apostolic age. And what this is, is a time period that has been termed the apostolic age because it's the final work of Christ and the apostles before the church is kind of sent out on its own. Where that foundation was being laid. And, and where the, the Word of God is being canonized as we understand so that it's uh, solidified into the books of the Bible that we have today. And all these things are coming about to, uh, through the, the, the end of the apostolic age so that we can see and have the church that we have today. And so when we think about the apostolic age, which began with Jesus, okay, Jesus coming into the world, His incarnation, What do we know about Jesus' work and ministry in this world? He brought about miraculous signs and wonders throughout His ministry that did what? Impress people? No. That's not what He was for. Jesus brought about signs and wonders, healing of people's sicknesses, raising people of the dead. Why? So that the message that Jesus was bringing would be authenticated. That is the understanding of prophecy throughout all of the Bible is that miraculous signs accompany the prophet to authenticate the prophet's message. So what we have then is in the apostolic age, first with Jesus in His earthly ministry, even the disciples then, God uh, granted them special favor where they were able to do miraculous signs and wonders when they were sent out by Jesus Himself. And then when Jesus dies and is buried and rises from the grave and ascends to heaven, He sends out the the now called apostles into the world. And what do they do? They bring about miraculous signs and wonders. Peter and Paul are healing people. Miraculous things are happening as a supernatural testimony to what? The authentication of the message of these apostles. Now listen, that's not a new concept. Throughout the Bible, that's what's happened. Matter of fact, if you go back through the scope of history, you're going to see three main periods throughout the Bible of that type of work. Where there were miraculous signs and wonders that were allowed by God in His uh, sovereign work and power to authenticate the message of those messengers or prophets. So before the apostolic age, let's back up to the first era or time, which was Moses and Joshua's era. Through Moses and Joshua, what did we see? 
We saw and and emphasized time through those men's ministry whereby they were proclaiming the revelation of God and in doing so, performing miracles like the ten plagues in Egypt, right? Like water from the rock, like bread from heaven, like the, the, the destruction of the walls of Jericho, like the crossing of the red, uh, the parting of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan River. All of these things were not just to go, wow, God is powerful. Yes, we are, are praising God for that, but particularly the signs and miracles pointed to the message of these men, Moses and Joshua. Fast forward to the second era. The second era was Elijah and Elisha. Same thing. You have a concentrated time period whereby God is bringing about miraculous work to solidify and, and, and bring attention to the words that these men were saying, the revelation from God that He was speaking as His mouthpiece to the people that were receiving that message. Elijah and Elisha, Moses and Joshua, Joshua were a part of this time, these time periods whereby God brought about these miraculous works. Now here's what's interesting. When you take those time periods away from the story of, of scripture, you don't have those emphasized times of miraculous gifts that were, were coming through that were authenticating the messages of these prophets. You didn't see miraculous gifts being given to Isaiah or Jeremiah. You didn't see these things. Because God was in His sovereignty laying out these time periods so that when it concludes with Jesus and the apostles, we see why. Why did it conclude with Jesus and the apostles? Because He was authenticating their message so the church would be created and and begin. That was the point. That was the goal. And so the foundation of the apostles and the prophets was laid. Therefore, there becomes no need for miraculous sign gifts, such as prophecy, such as speaking in tongues, such as healing and miracles, to accompany the revelation that came from God when God has given us a completed revelation in His Word. That's what Paul is showing us in these passages in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's think about it. We have this foundation. We have the foundation that's been laid, which means it's been completed. So let's think about these roles of the apostles and prophets. We know that the apostles were those that were sent to testify of the risen Christ. They were qualified to be apostles because they witnesses they witnessed Jesus in his resurrected form and their work as apostles was to bear witness to all that Jesus taught them this included the apostle Paul as he was visited by the Lord and instructed in the way he was called to be this apostle to testify of Christ and his redemptive work this means that the apostles cannot exist today since no one is being visited by the resurrected Lord Jesus and sent out as emissaries to establish the church. The foundation has already been laid. The twelve apostles, Paul, even the Bible says James was considered an apostle 
because it was designated for him and referred to in the book of Galatians as a, a man who by had was given authority. And we even see that authority in the book of Acts in the in, in Acts chapter 15 during the Jerusalem Council where he was leading the church as an apostle. He was exhibiting authority as an apostle in the, the, the leadership that he was given. And these apostles were church witnesses of the authority that God had been given them and they were the mouthpieces of God. And the miracles that they performed affirmed that message. But the apostle... Uh, the gift of apostleship or office of the church of apostle has ceased, which differs quite differently from the belief of, say, Roman Catholics, right? Roman Catholics believe and hold to what's called apostolic succession. And in apostolic succession, they believe that every pope down the line, starting with the apostle Peter, they inherited the apostleship of the previous pope that God had given them. And with that apostleship came authority. And with that authority came revelation from God. So that, that literally the apostle, or excuse me, the apostolic succession that the Roman Catholics believe they have literally means that they can speak for God. That what they say is divine from the Lord. Now we're like, pastor, that's crazy. Is it that crazy? You know what? We are all, we are all aware of and probably um, have experienced situations where someone has told us that they have a word of the Lord for us. Right? Right? Oh, the, the Lord told me to give you this or to tell you these things. And folks, this is the question that we're answering today. Is God really giving someone a word from Him to you today? That's what a, a miraculous gift is. That is prophetic, prophetic revelation given to you today directly from the Lord. Whether it's individual or corporate, that is what they are saying. And we glance that off as, oh, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. I'll take that to heart. And folks, I'm telling you that my belief and interpretation, if, as we're going to look at in Scripture, is that that has ceased with the apostles and the prophets. That the only word from the Lord that you have and need in our day today is from God's Word, these 66 books of the Bible. That's all you need. It's sufficient. There's no individual delivery system whereby God is going to send you a message through your neighbor or your friend when you have everything you need in God's Word. And, and, and let's follow that logically down the trail. If that message comes, how are you to believe it? And if you're going to believe that message, why not this other message? Where does the discernment come? And we're going to look at that in chapter 14. So stay with me for next time. Apostles were, as I said... Um, their office and, and gift ceased. Therefore, we don't hold to an apostolic secession. I am not an apostle. I am not a, a, a man that has been given special revelation. I am literally preaching God's Word from the text that's been given to us. 
Now, what we would say and, and, and follow with is, is what Robert Godfrey says from Ligonier Ministries when he writes, quote, The apostles never taught the apostolic secession of offices. They did, however, teach the apostolic secession of truth, which was to be preserved in the scriptures for us always, so that we believe in the apostolic secession, not of an office, but of truth. Therefore, what the apostles passed down to us is not authority in some official leadership form, but instead they passed down the truth of God's Word to us. This is what is the foundation of the church. Therefore, we should believe that the apostles had a purpose in history of the initial creation of the church through the work of proclaiming the revealed Word of God, but their time was limited, their function has ceased, but the reverberating effects of their ministry of Christ and the gospel echoes through the ages into our lives today. Also, prophets. Tom Schreiner defines prophecy in a very helpful way. He says, quote, Prophecy is the reception of spontaneous revelation from God. That is to instruct, encourage, and warn the people of God. Now, we know and have seen how the Old Testament prophets received revelation from the Lord, and they declared that authoritative word with the disclaimer, quote, thus saith the Lord. This phrase lets the people know that these words were revealed from God alone by His Spirit. And we'll dive more deeply into what was going on in Ephesians chapter 14, but we, we must understand that just as Ephesians 2 identifies a completed era of the, of the apostles, so it identifies the a prophetic office was completed as a part of the foundation as well. So what Paul is telling these Ephesians then is that New Testament prophets existed alongside the apostles during the apostolic age that received direct revelation from the Lord. And Paul uses the term prophets in Ephesians 2, not meaning Old Testament prophets, but New Testament prophets. And let me give you two reasons why. Some people want to argue that in Ephesians chapter 2, that Paul means the apostles of the New Testament and the prophets of the Old. They're saying, oh no, pastor, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles were the foundation, and that has ceased. Did you see how, how that helps a continuationist argument? Because if you believe that Paul is referring to Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles, then that leaves room for New Testament prophecy to be completely different than what the rest of prophecy has been throughout all the, of the Bible. And that's the argument. Matter of fact, you've heard us, uh, uh, Stuart, I know, and, and, and Adam and I reference sometimes in our sermons uh, one contemporary theologian, Wayne Grudem, okay, or maybe John Piper. These men are godly men that we love and we, uh, are bene- we benefit from their, their ministry and their understanding of God's Word, but we don't agree with all of them all the time. In the same way that we don't agree with any of the other biblical heroes that we have. Charles Spurgeon, John MacArthur, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin. We're always going to find something with these men that we don't agree with and, and still can learn from. Wayne Grudem in particular, who I studied in seminary for my systematic theology, he believes in the continuation of spiritual gifts. 
And his argument lands on Ephesians chapter 2.20 as interpreting prophets in that passage as the Old Testament prophecy, which is different from New Testament prophecy. Okay, that's his argument. So for continuationists to believe in New Testament prophecy that continues in the church today, many of them, not all of them, but many of them will say, oh, but it's a different prophecy. It's not the same thing as thus saith the Lord. Well, what makes it different? Well, we'll get to that in just a second. Okay? What I'm arguing is that Old Testament prophecy is not being mentioned here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Here's why. Because Paul would never put Old Testament prophets second in that statement. He wouldn't say apostles, oh, and Old Testament prophets. When literally, logically, they come before apostles. Paul would say... Uh, Old Testament prophets or prophets and apostles in a logical uh, kind of timeline, if that's what he meant. Instead, he actually means apostles and prophets in that New Testament age of the apostolic age. New Testament prophets that were receiving uh, a prophecy from the Lord. Not only would he uh, not get that order confused, but he mentions apostles and prophets two other times in Ephesians, referring to New Testament prophets, not Old Testaments. Uh, if you're in chapter 2, you probably don't even have to turn your page. Look at chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. I'll start in verse 2 of chapter 3. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there were made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now made known... Or excuse me, as it is now made known to the sons of men and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So Paul says this mystery of the church, the mystery of Christ, whereby the Jews and the Gentiles would be together as a church. He goes, the former generations did not understand that. What former generations? The Old Testament generations. But now, he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the holy apostles and prophets were given that understanding. So there he uses apostles and prophets to solidify the fact that he's not talking about Old Testament. He's talking about New Testament prophets. All right. So why can't prophecy and these other miracles still operate in the church today? Well, as I said, this is kind of the view that continuationists hold. As I said, Wayne Grudem in his book makes the argument that this type of prophecy in the church today is a redefined prophecy, the very nature of it. In order for their view to sync with the inerrant and completed canon of Scripture, which they hold to, They redefine prophecy to mean something different. Wayne Grudem says in his book, Prophecy in the New Testament, quote, In ordinary New Testament churches, prophecy was not equal to Scripture in authority, but was simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report of some of the things the Holy Spirit brought to one's mind, end quote. 
So those who agree with Grudem then continue with the thought process to say that prophecy in Paul's day and in Paul's usage in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 believe in a revelation from God that was misinterpreted by man. That you were mistaken. They're not going to say that the revelation was mistaken, but you got it wrong as you delivered it to the, prop, to the, to the people. Now, I have a question about that. This is the divergence that is so difficult for me. Because as Grudem believes that Old Testament prophets delivered an infallible revelation from the Lord, why believe the New Testament prophets somehow would get it wrong? What's the change? What's the difference? Yes, there was standards in the Old Testament for false prophets. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it was given very clearly that a prophet that proclaimed in the name of the Lord and got it wrong, what happened to that prophet? Somebody tell me. He would be killed. Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says in verse 18 through 20, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Now, what happened in the Old Testament when a man spoke on behalf of the Lord, but was not actually speaking the words of the Lord? He was killed. He was tested and he was killed. But the New Testament argument is, oh, brother, you just got that wrong. You were mistaken. Maybe next time you'll have a better option. Maybe, maybe you'll, you'll nail it the next time and hit the bullseye. But right here, you, brother, you were mistaken. It's okay. We'll just move on. That's inconsistency. It's inconsistency and it doesn't help the cause of continuationists to say, well, it's just a different type of prophecy. That's why we must understand and know that when prophecy was given by the revelation of God to people, it was infallible and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and it was safeguarded by God as it was delivered to man. This prophecy was delivered at a certain time in history by God's chosen servants, compiled and completed for us in the finalized canon of Scripture. Therefore, whatever revelation that was spoken by the prophets that was not recorded in the canon was sovereignly decided by the king that it would not be revealed to us. But what was revealed to us, the Word of God, is sufficient, authoritative, and completed, and that is our wisdom, and our guidance for today. So that when we go to the Word and, and, and want to learn, we're not like some of these authors today that are saying, oh, but I had this experience that the Lord gave me. And those experiences are defined by things outside of the Word of God. Listen, the, the Lord can impress upon you very clear and personal convictions and encouragements and hopes that you find in God's Word. I'm not denying that. 
He will encourage and uplift your heart or He will crush you under the weight of your own sin as you read or recall the Word of God. That's not what we're talking about in the scope of prophecy and the role of prophets. We're talking about new revelation. Oftentimes today labeled as personal information from the Lord to you. That may be gotten wrong and therefore you need to discern. This type of of belief brings confusion, confusion to the system of revelation that was already established by the prophets and apostles and it threatens the word of God that was delivered once for all to the saints. So we've talked about the foundation. We've talked a little bit about the apostles and the prophets and their role in their ministry in establishing the very core doctrines and truths of Christ and the church. And now what happens? Well, it's completed. And now the building has to be erected. And, and, and since that time where the, the, the apostolic age kind of faded away and, and we had the, the canon of Scripture and the Word of God, what has been happening? The church is being built. Present tense, continual action, being built. You are the church. You are the building. Look at verse 20 of Ephesians 2. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fit together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in, into a dwelling, house, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The conclusion of this is the encouragement. What happened with the apostles and the prophets, that foundation that was being laid, is literally the, the building of the church. Each individual Christian that has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is being a part, is, is grafted into a metaphorical building with Christ as the head. And this is where we kind of segue back to our study of, of spiritual gifts. Because it's literally the truth of God's Word that we live by, that, we, that we, we, we learn and understand with the knowledge and the mysteries that are revealed to us and the gifts that the Spirit has given us for today that we use to do what? Edify the church. And what Paul, will, his argument in 1 Corinthians 14 is he will, he will make the argument that prophecy is the edifying uh, gift for the body in that time while tongue speaking was not. And the Corinthians were elevating tongue speaking and not showing love to their brothers and sisters in Christ because they thought that they were just enamored by tongue speaking like we are flicking our screens up and down on Instagram with the next information, the next picture, the next controversial t- topic. It was addictive. They were amazed by the, this gift of tongue speaking and therefore they, they, they ignored the love of, uh, that they should have for their brothers and sisters in Christ. But we are the building. We are the ones that are given these spiritual gifts to use and operate in the church. Why? For the building up and the edification of the church. That the Spirit of God is doing this in all of us. So while we should not divide over these miraculous gifts, whether we believe they're still active or they're not, what we should be doing is getting busy using our gifts to edify this body. To be a blessing to one another. 
To say, what is my gift? Let me not live a dormant life in my Christianity ignoring the gift that God has given me. I don't want to fight and divide over these other gifts that may or may not be active in the church today. But let me ask you this. Am I using my gift? Am I exercising the gift that God has specifically given me to be a help and encouragement and a hope to my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's Paul's real message because that's the message of love that we just studied in 1 Corinthians 13. That we are to love one another. To use these gifts to serve one another. And this reminds us that as the building of Christ, the church, we are in the process of construction. I can really get into a sermon that has a lot of construction illustrations. We're in the process. And if I can tell you anything, is that in a construction process, it requires a lot of patience. You were thinking it requires a lot of money. It does require a lot of money. I'm not raising money today. It requires a lot of patience. All right? God so tested me in my life that He gave me a job where I have to deal with people's patience and impatience every day. You know why? Because I struggle with patience. And when I go in someone's house and I tear it up, I have to remind them every day, it's a process. All right? I know it's dusty. I know it's dirty. I know I've completely ripped out your entire bathroom and you're panicking right now. It's okay. It's a process. Y'all, we're on this journey as the church and we're in a construction phase and we're in this process of growing and and learning and and, and, and serving one another and, and it gives us hope. That we are purposely being selected and put here for a purpose to serve the other brothers and sisters in this body because it honors Christ. It honors what He's done in our lives. It's not meant to be ignored or, or remain stagnant in our lives, but instead exercised, these gifts exercised for the glory of Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, he gave some as apostles and prophets and as evangelists and pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service or ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man and to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Man, we are all on a journey. Individually and corporately, our faith journey is where our gifts are exercised so that we can reach a healthy growth to maturity. And when does that maturity come? When Christ returns. That's the journey we're on. And so we're patient with one another. We're kind. We're gracious. We're using our gifts. We're helping the church grow. Let's pray. Father, thank You for...